absolutely nothing beats the intrigue between best frenemies here on V'ger, please. A heinous trip at Warp 5. My name is Joseph. Wash stays tomorrow. There's nothing clean, right? Your co-host, Peter. Before we talk about Star Trek this week, Peter, you and I did something that neither of us do very often. It's very hard for me to do. Yeah, very hard for you to do. Um, Total lack of desire on my part to do. We're not Um, talking about sex with each other, by the way. No, no. There's a tremendous amount of desire for that. But uh, we are talking about going to the movie theater. And both of us, independent of each other, we did not realize we had both seen this movie until we talked about it just a few minutes ago. uh, Because I wanted to talk about it. And it turns out you do too. And that is we both went to the theater and watched Godzilla Minus One. I deeply enjoyed that experience. I really liked the movie. What were your thoughts? I'm not a huge Godzilla guy. Me neither. Um, I thought Godzilla versus Kong, which came out free on HBO Max at launch. Like I watched it and there were cool parts to it and there was trash. And at the end of the day, like anything bad I wanted to say about the movie, I was like, well, I knew what I was getting into going into it. Like, how can I complain about this? Godzilla minus one. Uh, how could you know what you're going into? It's been a long, I can't tell you the last time I saw a movie, maybe Ghostbusters afterlife. Maybe I saw Dune. Dune one was the last movie I saw in theaters. I, you know, with kids. No, I'm tired. I take that back. I saw guardians of the galaxy three, while we were at Universal Studios in their badass um, movie theater they've got down there in Florida, uh, in the Universal Boardwalk. How could we not have reached this point on the trajectory we're in? Because between the writer's strike, the the, the general malaise of Hollywood's productions to begin with. like There's less content coming out, and the content that is coming out domestically is trash. Right. Straight up. And you've got two options, and one is that is the movie theaters are going to close up. I guess three. Uh, the second one is they start doing reruns, which I think have been doing them very well. And there's stuff that comes out, like Wrath of Khan got re-released, and I was like, shit, I want to see that. And that's cool, man. I want to see Jurassic Park. I want to see it all. If I didn't have kids and I could just, you know, fuck off on a Friday and go do that kind of stuff, I'd do it. Uh, option three is you start seeing an ascension of foreign films in U.S. box offices. And this Godzilla minus one thing, I didn't even know it came out. I was sitting at lunch and I looked out the window and I saw a post for us. Like, what the fuck is Godzilla minus one? And I watched enough on the Internet to seem like, hey, this might be cool. Uh, it kicked the, sh- you know, what didn't kick the shit out of the Marvels, but for a foreign film with English subtitles to do as well as it did domestically in the U.S. is ridiculous. And I think it's uh, it- it's two things. One, you have an attention starved public. And two, uh, it's just a solid ass movie, man. And it I'm is. not it's a it's a fantastic Japanese melodrama, which. I have a tremendous affection for Japanese pop culture to begin with. Uh, My wife and I essentially, when we first met, we sort of like connected over our mutual like of that. Um, We went to Japan for our honeymoon. Like we're big Japanese stands in this house. And I've watched my fair share of live action Japanese melodrama as a consequence. So 
I've liked it as a dramatic style because it's very expressive in a way that translates to a foreign audience very well. Probably not coincidentally. Like you watch Japanese actors. They're so into what they're doing. Even though you're having to read the subtitles, the, your, the emotion is bleeding through very easily for the audience. And I think that was definitely the case in this movie. Um, and it just, it, the economy of the film was something I appreciated a lot. And that was kind of why I wanted to talk about it because we're in the season four stuff right now where we're talking about how they're making excellent Star Trek on literally half the budget that they're used to having. And they're doing it by doing what? Limited sets, lots of actors having to do actor stuff, right? We're just going to put everybody on camera. You're just going to have to work against each other. And that's what we're doing today, right? Like our episode we did last week, you know, no guest stars, no special sets, no special effects, but it was excellent as a, as a drama. And in the same way, when you're watching this movie, there's what, like four sets they made for the damn thing. Plus the monster stuff. They apparently did it on less than $15 million total budget with marketing. Um, so with marketing, that's the yeah. big part too. Cause not production you, market, but like whole package, 15 million marketing many times comes out to be about on par with what the actual movie cost was. Uh, and no, normally they're not willing to discuss marketing budgets either. So that's really how big of a win was for that. For me, I love that they set it back in time instead of oh, pushing yeah. this like goofy over car future. Totally works. Doing it as an origin story. Tying it in with World War Two, this dude's grief and guilt given his like being able to take a zero pilot that didn't commit suicide on Pearl Harbor and like give him the sympathetic story that you could feel for. Well, not on Pearl Harbor. I mean, it was it it, it is it's it a Pearl Harbor in, run. No, no. So I think it's important the context of the main characters. The main character is a zero pilot, as you mentioned. It's late war. They didn't do kamikazes until like 44, 45. And it was a desperation move, right? Of like, we're literally going to throw the lives of these young men away to have them suicide bomb ships because we want to try and demonstrate to the Americans they should never try to invade us where this is how dedicated we are. And the fact that his journey is like, I'm just, he chooses first, I'm checking out of my mission. I'm not killing myself. And then, you know, he has his early encounter with Godzilla and then his whole, his whole journey is how to, you know, taking responsibility for his actions to the degree he has culpability that he, you know, chose not to risk his life in certain circumstances when perhaps he should have should because of his, what he perceives as cowardice. Does he have the right to a life, right? Like, does he have Real life, right to happiness? That's, that's the foreign concept. There is uh, the self deprivation of joy over. Oh, it's very uh, Japanese. Yeah. But it still uh, translates as a sort of like male trauma. Right. And that's, I think, what I liked about it the most is it was a very male story of like this guy's having to cope with his role as a, a man who fought in this war, who didn't fulfill his duty, who is, you know, now attempting to fulfill a new duty to, to not shirk his responsibilities, to make peace with what he has done with the while the society is trying to pick itself back up. And there's a great story told in that in that whole environment. The whole thing's good. Uh, the fact that Godzilla's almost a secondary consideration. Uh, yeah, he's just a monster. Very he's the just, monster he's, it's stuff, great. though, is really good. Yeah, he's just he's I, I, just an animal. He's a dumb animal doing dumb animal shit. Like, and he's horrifying, but he's not like 
there's nothing weird going on I'm about attacking him that you need. the destroyers. Like it's all good. Setting it against yeah. the World War II backdrop, just I I would almost say it might be my favorite World War II era movie at this point. And I'm burned out. You know why? Because there's no Nazis. And I'm so fucking sick and tired of Nazis. <laughs> Give yeah, me Godzillas and uh, and Japanese battleships. Did we want to talk for five minutes about? giant freaking robot i think ran a story it feels like there's some sort of spin machine out there like an acknowledgement that there's not going to be a legacy tv show but hey you know maybe that's for the best have you encountered any of this i saw the link in our discord um it sounds like that there's some movie script idea that's out there i'm not sure any of the projects you know as we've discussed like it doesn't sound like any of them are going to move forward because Paramount Plus isn't long for this world. And once it does get bought and WB, you know, consumes it whole, like none of these production contracts are going to survive. Like if they whole- take Star Trek, though, man, I mean, it's very possible that which, by the way, throwing back to our last week's episode, I haven't watched another second of uh, Prodigy, if that says anything. <laughs> <laughs> it was fine while I was doing dishes, but I have not bothered to go back to that. Well, yeah, I, I whatever. I'm, you know, whatever distant hope that I think you could entertain in the aftermath of Picard season three's triumph um, about, oh, maybe this is finally Trek finding its way back into the good graces of its its audience. And, uh, you know, the only good things will happen from here. And Terry Metalis is going to have a role. I think that that's just all shot for no other reason except Paramount Plus is a failing business model. And failing business models collapse no matter who's doing what. And that collapse is going to happen before anything occurs with this franchise. And yeah, they may not take Trek might not be get get taken with them on this, but that just means there's no one to buy it. There's mm. no one to bankroll this shit. And that means it's over. So um yeah, I don't I don't believe any of it at this point. Yeah. Well, speaking of who's doing what. There's a lot of that going on in this episode. Oh, yeah. Season four, episode 12, Babel one first aired January 28th, 2005, written by uh, Mike Sussman and Andre Baramis, directed by David Striden. There are wheels within wheels within wheels in this episode, man. There's a lot going on. There is some real cool shit with like lore of Earth. And like what they're trying trick they're trying to pull, Archer coming into his own, Shran on the scene, uh Tellerites, Romulans. It's got it all, man. It does. And I believe in this one we're gonna open up with Shran having a pretty bad day. His bridge is trashed, he's all fucked up. Uh we can see we know that the Andorians are gonna end up founding Federation members, and judging by the amount of debris on the bridge we know where the majority of starfleet engineering comes from and it's yeah, the Andorians the, with their... the the big uh ballasts they have the rocks on yes. the bridge that are released when battle occurs to, to create more casualties yes. large support struts that simply don't exist like where where could this big rail possibly go there's a space dome over us i would think i would see a big eye beam but it's magically fallen from uh the invis maybe they use cloaking devices to hide like the actual load bearing supports so you can have that nice domed whatever they want that smooth look they don't want to be troubled by all of the uh engineering necessary to make it happen uh 
he's having a bad time. He's calling for uh, backup and assistance, saying that they had just been attacked by Tellarites. And then the computer says, hey, by the way, the warp core is about to go. And uh, he has to suck it up and order everyone to abandon ship while swearing to avenge what has happened with Tellarite blood. The Kamari getting destroyed is actually kind of a big deal. Like, this ship has been a, a real factor in this show. It helped, us, it helped defend Earth, you know? Sure did. And, and at the end of season three, I mean, this... There were two spaceships that helped defend Earth. Enterprise and... The Kamari. The only other ship in the entire sector, if you were to believe... <laughs> Before the Earth fleet was blinked into existence around the mm-hmm. end of episode two mm-hmm. of the season. Uh, yeah, I mean, this is... As Strand himself says later, like, he apparently commanded the ship for 12 years... First of um, its class, it was a Pathfinder. Right. And he, uh, you know, he was the anti-Picard. He fucking knew everybody on that ship. He knew their spouses. He knew their kids. You know, this that was his family family. Mm-hmm. Uh, he started fucking them. We'll get to that. <laughs> and Not the kids. His, the, 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 his, his, subordinates. his subordinates. Yeah. Yeah. Um, so the, the Kamari getting destroyed is a big deal. This is a, a ship that's mattered in Enterprise. And... You know, Shran losing his command is certainly like ups the stakes immediately of what's going on. Like, we're not getting what the stakes are in this episode are so big. The Kamari is going to get destroyed in the, in the teaser, <laughs> right? Like, <laughs> it's it's just the appetizer. We get through our terrible, as always, intro, and then we get into a pretty nasty back and forth between Archer and. It was he the reason Hoshi and Archer broke up. <laughs> <laughs> that's how they fight <laughs> mm-hmm. again I mean they're, he's really given a turn she's really given it to him they're too good at this they're too good at this for not to have been a replay of something in the past we find out it's uh, Hoshi is prepping Archer for his uh, his role as the negotiator that will be hosting the Tellarite ambassador and the and Dorian ambassador as they try to resolve some conflicts they're currently having on a trade route where ships are reportedly going missing and coming under attack. And the Tellarites apparently have this little quirk where they like to come in and immediately start motherfucking you. And if you're not able to spit fire back at them, they take that as a sign of weakness and uh, it discredits you in their eyes. Tellarites are my kind of people, Peter. <laughs> like, Why? Because because they eat dogs? No, because Tellarites eat dogs. Hoshi says as much. Yeah, he does. Does that is the a less admirable trait? But there, I'm with I'm with Trip on this episode about admiring the Tellarite, like just honesty. There's something to be said for just we're gonna shit test you right off the bat, the bat, and if you pass, we'll be friends, and if not, we're gonna look down on you, like. There's something refreshing about that. It's very different. So there's some retconning, some light retconning maybe going on here. Granted, the first time we really are introduced into the Tellarites, um, Archer is not on a diplomatic mission by any stretch of the imagination. He was a fugitive to the... Caught by uh, a bounty hunter. <laughs> yeah, Klingon government fugitive, and a Tellarite bounty hunter grabs him. So yeah, they're not going to go through normal niceties of... Uh, social protocols. Um, the Tellarite, 
What were the experiences with the Tellarites in original series? There's a similar episode to this in the original series. In fact, I think it is actually called Babel, where there are ambassadors of all of the major species, Dorians uh, and Tellarites among them, on Enterprise to be transported to a conference. Um, and that's part of the reason why I think they went as far as even to mention Babel in the title and in the dialogue as the destination to kind of demonstrate a continuity that this is a planet that's used for diplomatic negotiations for a long time. Um, and you know, it's the sixties, right? It was sixties Trek. Everything was just kind of new and it's hard to tell like what the intentions were then, but, uh, this is pretty consistent with the tone I would say. Because uh, there's a Strange New Worlds episode that involves the Tellarites, right? Not Strange New Worlds. There is a Lower Decks episode that has a Tellarite captain of a other Cerritos-class ship, I believe. And he's super argumentative and, and shit-testy with What's uh, Freeman. the one in Strange New Worlds where Pike has to basically figure out that the alien race he's diplomat, like they They have empathy. And so they take on the uh, the Tellarites mm. tried to negotiate with them first, and they just got super argumentative with them because okay, they right. That's vibed what the on angle it. Was yeah, and they met with the Vulcans. They were super logical with the humans, super back patty, you know, like. And that was that was uh, Pike working through the puzzle to say what they want is someone to take their position and mm. to show empathy for what their you know potential downside is for entering into this alliance because that would be honest. And so. Uh, so the Tellarites haven't really shown up in strange new worlds in any appreciable way. Uh, but there is a, you know, they're, they are a key member of the Federation. They're a founding member of the Federation. But they're definitely the least utilized, I think, so far within the canon. Yeah, they've got the most uncomfortable makeup, it looks like. <laughs> yeah, who'd want to who'd want to play one? <laughs> looks like someone uh, trying to cosplay as a dog, and the only prosthetics you have are old baseball gloves. <laughs> no wonder they and, want to and eat pubic them. hair. They're they're envious. They're going to get ready to go pick up this uh, Tellerite delegation. I like Trip's line in there, like as he gets indignant uh, that you know they should be out exploring deep space, and he's like, "Oh, now we're a shuttle service." It's like you always have been, bro. This is Star Trek. The number one mission that all hero ships get to go on, including Voyager sometimes, is drive the guy to drive the people to the place. I, I do like that this episode starts to make the galaxy feel like it has some structure, right? Because Enterprise, it's been a lot of go out and explore things and find things and spin nebulous. And this is your first turn. Especially after Delphic expands. Yeah. And, and this is your first turn towards a mission that enterprise has specifically related to earth attempting to mediate an intergalactic dispute that they don't actually have a role in, right? Like they had a role in what happened on Vulcan. They were involved because they blew up their embassy, right? Like they, they were forced to be involved. Uh, but in this case, as Archer, you know, reflects on later, like earth just decided that they could try and like be a player, right? Like, the Vulcans have taken themselves off the table a little bit. And there's really nobody else to help these two figure their out their differences. Why don't we take a shot at it? Because if we can, we're going to buy ourselves all kinds of credibility with both the Andorians and the Tellarites. And that's good for us. 
That's good for our ambitions. You know who else doesn't have a role? The security department. (laughs) (laughs) There's no more security on the Enterprise. It's just Mako's. And that's unfortunate because you always have to have clowns who get punked. And normally, that's Starfleet security officers. And since they don't exist anymore, uh, they've got Mako's filling every single security guard function on the ship. And it's now the Makos that are going to be getting slapped around like clowns left and right. And that starts with the uh, honor guard that's there to receive the Telerite ambassador as he comes in on the shuttle pod and begins uh, shitting all over Enterprise. I want to defend the Makos a little bit in this episode. Uh, there's one Mako that gets one into guy. a fight. There's one guy who gets into a fight in this episode and he actually does okay. Right? Like he manages to to neutralize Shran. He gets get his that's ass kicked not- by the other... Andorian? That's, that's not the fight worth giving this guy credit for. He turns down Blue Vagoo. <laughs> the fact that he knocked Shran out is the the smaller accomplishment there. Uh, that guy is Mr. Business. I don't know if we get to see him again at all, but that will be his name moving forward from here out as Mr. Business. That's Before what we get to Mr. About. Business, though, as you mentioned, the Tellarites get on board. They shit test Archer. Archer's in his element, man. Archer is vibing on this chief diplomat role that he knows he's destined for, thanks to Daniels. And he's happy to duel with this guy. And he even cracks a smile later on as he's, after he's gives uh, um, Trip a bunch of shit. <laughs> like it's like he's a Tellerite and makes him like kind of run away and then kind of like turns around and smile. Like, yeah, I'm fucking good at this. And I like that. I like Archer taking the role as arch diplomat seriously and that this is his first real step into I'm going to try and mediate a much larger dispute than me and my planet and see if I can actually do this thing that Daniels apparently insists I'm destined to do. I wish that I had another diplomatic role for Archer as accessible to me as stupid ass night in sick bay. And it's unfortunate that's always my go-to example of Archer as a diplomat is potentially his greatest failure as a diplomat with his dog peeing on the tree and then being an insolent bitch the entire time. Like, yeah, you've got uh, the Romulan, I'm sorry, the Andorian and uh, Vulcan stuff that really fleshes it out better. But that's such a low point for him. And by contrast, everything here looks great for him. Uh, I want to jump back to the humans as middlemen, right? Mm -hmm. It is their, the fact that they're the new kids on the block gives them this power to unite because they can't really be in that deep with anybody else. Like, yeah, he saved the galaxy. If people are to believe the Zindi threat and um, the, the sphere builders, terraforming of the elf of not alpha quadrant but of uh, our dimension or whatever and i assume that would be just chalked up as a conspiracy theory to most other races regardless of vulcan buy-in but hey these guys are new they can't really be that indebted to anybody else we can kind of trust them as a neutral party to uh start handling these matters it's a strong connective tissue to have the new kids on the block 
be the uniting force to bring a lot of these old adversaries together? Because I believe Andorians and Tellarites have been butting heads for like a hundred years at least. Yeah, for a long time. And you know, the the humanity's superpower being, hey, why don't we all just chill and talk like adults? Um because I'm you know, I'm so not involved with any of your beefs, I can kind of help you see beyond them. I mean, that's very Roddenberry, right? It's very idealistic, but it does give humanity a role, right? Like it kind of explains why they always seem to be in the catbird seat in the Federation in a leadership position. And it's because, well, everyone else kind of figured out that's what they're good at. You guys are good at bringing everyone together, finding a solution. That's that, you know, Vulcans are logical. Tellarites are good um, uh, uh, engineers. Andorians are excellent, you know, uh, tactical officers. And you guys are great at bringing all these talents together and making something bigger than our individual pieces into a larger whole. And, and you know, Enterprise's uh, value proposition at the beginning was what? We're going to tell you the story of how these things you already knew existed came to be, right? The origin story. And finally, here it is. Took four seasons, but here it is. <laughs> like good Four job, seasons and a lot of bad gunfights. Yeah, well, there's a terrible amount of bad gunfights came to, uh, had to, had to be to exist to get here. Um, the Tellarites are exhausting to be around to some, right? Of course. Others, like you said, they, they embrace it. I like that the Tellarite ambassador is like, you know, Looks like your chef put in a lot of work to uh, replicate our food. If I wanted to eat the stuff, I would have stayed at home. I want to try your cuisine. And that's a nice, um, again, further coloring the picture that these races want to be part of a federation. They want to be open to exploring new things. They want to grow beyond um, their what, what they currently know. I got to go back to this dog thing. <laughs> are there dogs on the Tellarite homeworld or did somehow the Tellarites get their hands on earth dogs and decide to eat them? I want to say it's the latter that like some trader came with, you know, Bilbo the Husky and they're like, I want that. I want to see how it tastes fried. Oof. And now they know now they know things. Yeah. Oof. Yeah, Tellarites aren't necessarily the, you know, the diplomatic core of the Federation. We'll we'll put it that way. Not when you've developed a reputation for eating the pets. <laughs> I do. I do appreciate it. Porthos's one and only scene was him being like, "No, Dad, don't let me get eaten. <laughs> don't let this. Don't let the sausage-faced aliens eat me, please. <laughs> please feed me cheese." Uh, um, we'll find out at some point. I think it's over dinner. Which dinner lately has just consisted of uh, Archer and T'Pol alone. But she got a communique. She seems preoccupied. Um, and she will later disclose to Archer that she has finally gotten her divorce from Mr. MVP himself. Yes, the man too good for her, Koss. <laughs> the Koss has grand- decided he can move on. Yes, the, he has done what he needed to do. To form the Federation, he may now pursue his own interests. So the plot of the episode really starts to break out when Enterprise detects the the uh, uh, distress call from the teaser 
And when they go to investigate, they see a very blown up ship. It's all pieces now. Uh, definitely a warp core breach caused this. And they pick up some life signs and some escape pods and bring them on board. And sure enough, it is Shran and 19 of his 85 crew that have survived. And that is that is um, big ouch. It's a, it's a big pain. Um, he's very happy that uh, Talos survived his main squeeze from the last time we saw him, actually. Replacing Susie Plaxton, his treacherous previous exo. But, you know, like Talos is a is a as a lovely replacement, right? Yeah. And uh, as we will find out, apparently she uh, she's very aggressive about the things she wants and. Uh, they're dating now because it was either that or or charge her with striking a superior officer. Uh, so uh, he fucking Shran. I mean, as always, Jeffrey Combs is amazing in these episodes. He's a welcome sight every time. His chemistry that he has with Scott Bakula and and the way these two characters have started to really figure each other out and the way they're playing against each other is great. Uh, because Archer, he keeps himself very like he's not too empathetic. He's very professional, but it's very respectful and like, wow, you lost your ship. That sucks. You know, you know, I, I, I'm here for you on this. I'm gonna have a drink with you when he, when he, uh, uh, when I say he, I mean, Shran accuses the Tellarites of having blown up a ship, but that's who was attacking him. That's what the censors said. And when Archer reveals like, well, I'm not here by coincidence. I have the Tellarites on board and Tran wants to go and immediately murder them. He actually grabs them by the arm, turns them around, and then very quietly says, like, you're on my ship. I'm not trying to embarrass you, right? Like, I'm not trying to cause a problem. I'm not going to throw you in jail because you were just about to commit murder. I'm just going to politely remind you that you're not in charge here and check you because we're boys, you know? <laughs> That's the vibe I got. He goes, hey, find my black box. You know, don't don't just stop with the life pods here. Pull the sensor data. It's going to prove what happened. And I'm a little shaky on my timeline, at which point he makes a statement. But he says, you know, I've never seen a Tellarite vessel move like that before. Intimating he says it right that, up front. Yeah. That something is off about his encounter where he just got his ass handed to himself. Um, you know. There's a lot of cool stuff in this episode. The main thrust of the plot, extremely predictable. This is uh, this is some real basic Star Trek storytelling where things are not as they seem. And this is going to be a situation where you have a third party with malicious intent masquerading to put two groups at odds with each other. Um, they pull the sensor data. They see that it's a Tellarite vessel. Um, Archer, Archer confronts the Tellarites about it. He's Jake. like, shoves it in his face. It was like, you better explain this because this is a Tellarite vessel blowing up the Sandorian vessel that had the Andorian ambassador on board. So I want to say, not a good look for Archer in here. It's a nice, not a nice, it's a noticeable step back. You've got the ambassador for a species that is attempting to make a peaceful progress uh something happening seemingly that ambassador's government 
taking actions behind their back. And you'd think that Archer, who just went through all this bullshit with Ambassador Suval and the Vulcan conspiracy to go to war with Andoria, that he would have a little bit more understanding like, dude, your government's fucking around behind your back. Maybe we can work together to find this peace thing after all. Like, he forgets all of those experiences and goes right to, you motherfucker. You killed those people. This blood's on your hands. I wonder how much of that was I'm shit testing to see what they'll say and how much of it was genuine accusation because that's not clear. You know, like, I got the vibe of he's pressing them because he wants information and this is how they're going to respond is if I kind of shove it up their ass. Not so much that he was doing that because he's Archer and he's being too emotional. That is a tricky situation that Enterprise has created for itself. Yeah, by not being well written until now. <laughs> like the creating this inconsistency. Solve, yeah, the way to solve that would have been a scene with T'Pol or someone else where it's like, well, that looks like they're sensor data. We need to confront them. I need them to respect me as I do it. So, Captain, maybe you should just go in there spit and fire and and accuse them of everything under the sun. So they see that, you know, you're respecting them as like part of the diplomatic process. The problem is that line blurs and it just feels like that moment, that scene, it feels like season one, season two, petulant bitch ass Archer. It's hardly uh, worth crucifying the episode for. No, uh, no, no. I, I, think it's it's, a, I think it fits, but like I can tell, definitely understand a less charitable interpretation of the scene. So uh, what's going to evolve from here is the Tellarites are going to start picking up the sentiment that Archer favors the Andorians, that he is not impartial, and that uh, ultimately these guys are in for some deep shit, that regardless of the truth, they're probably going to end up getting arrested and serving time in a Dorian jail or worse. Uh, meanwhile, Archer on his way to take uh, Shran and co back to. It's, it's just Andoria, right? Correct. They notice something on their six. There is an approach, a rapidly approaching Andorian vessel. So they try to contact it won't respond. Shran's on the bridge. It starts attacking. Shran tries to contact them, won't respond. And it's definitely where you have your first, okay, something very fucky is happening here because why is an Andorian vessel attacking an earth vessel with Andorian soldiers on board? Is it because this is a pre-planned hit on the Telluride ambassador? Hard to know. Lots of pregnant thoughts, in the air about what's going on and Archer ultimately because they're getting their ass kicked convinces Shran to get well it's a, it's a Mandorian vessel can you give me whatever the sweet spot is to blow it up because everyone every ship's got it every ship's got the blinking red weak point sure man we just went through this with um, the Zindi uh, Degra who just so happened to be like the father of modern ship architecture or shield systems or whatever was able to show Archer right where to punch to knock those reptilian vessels the fuck out. So tell us where the glowing weak point is on Andorian vessels, and let's get this thing disabled so we can actually talk. 
he provides it. Shran provides it to to Reed. I'm sorry. The last time we did this was uh, Soong and the Klingons. Oh, the Klingons, right. yeah. Yeah. And uh, Reed executes on it. But apparently what Shran thought the shield generators were were not that on the ship. Now he's confused, right? Like, that doesn't make any sense. I know the architecture of our ships. That's when you shot at this. This is what should have happened. And instead, some other kind of power fluctuation occurred. And, you know, they they broke off. That doesn't seem right. That's after Archer put a full spread of torpedoes up their ass. Very maneuverable. No, that we haven't seen the maneuverability yet. Uh, that was a that was a warp fight that that got them going there. So things are real fucking now. Uh, Archer's going to get the Tellarite and Shran in for a sit down. What the hell's going on here? Both the Tellarite ambassador and Shran escalate their threats at each other. And this is all very well done on everyone's part, right? Like the, the conflict between the two of them seems very intractable. They're paranoid accusations against each other. While the viewer knows that, that they're incorrect are grounded enough reality that no one seems uh, unreasonable uh, in their beliefs. And of course it descends to let's choke each other out. Right. And Archer's got to step in and try and, mediate what's going on here and, and point out like we've got a bigger problem where your biases about what's going on may not be helpful. Right. Cause again, this is why humanity got involved. Archer is seeing this much more objectively to say, okay, we got attacked by something that looks like an Andorian vessel and an Andorian vessel was attacked by something that looks like a Tellarite vessel. It's, it seems to be neither. Right. But what is it? And that is the new mystery that needs to be uh, investigated before they really get rolling on that investigation. Somewhere in here, Archer has his moment of doubt where uh, I think it's uh to Paul. He's talking to. Yeah. It's at that Basically. dinner scene that you mentioned earlier. It's, it's in the same scene. She gets uh, her divorce call from costs. What are we doing here? We are, we're dealing with people that have been at war for over a century this is deep rooted distrust and animosity, which, you know, again, you just went through with the Vulcans and the Andorians. Um, but am I, are we as humans going to be able to make things better? Is this a sand trap worth us getting into? And there's shades of dear doctor in here, which is something I want to talk about for two reasons, because the good part of dear doctor was the exposure of humanity that when you jump planet to planet and you start meddling in the affairs of uh, other solar systems and planets, it's in reality, it's, you know, one episode worth of content before you fly off and leave the mess you've made for the uh, Cerritos to come along and clean <laughs> up on second contact. Uh, but there's a commitment, right? And that was the best part of dear doctor was, um, to Paul kind of smugly being like, this is why you don't get involved with other planets. Because right. You're, now, you little human, you're understanding the, the bigger implications of your actions. Yeah. Are you ready for your starship to be in orbit for the next 10 years as you help rehabilitate this planet that you've chosen to involve yourself in? 
And that's what's going on here. Are you ready to expose yourself to the ugliness or get drawn into a conflict or or whatever else? The the line I don't want to pass it by that is so important, I think, in the scene is Archer asking to Paul, are we moving too fast? Mm-hmm. Brother, you're Jonathan Archer. Three seasons ago, it was fuck the Vulcans. We're going into space. We're going to do what the fuck we want. I'm bringing all f- my astrology books. Get the my fuck books. off my back. Stop following me around like I need a fucking chaperone in deep space. I'm a big boy now. I'm a big boy. We're big boy Earth now. We can do things. We can go into space I'm now. I'm Jonathan Archer, and I'm out of here. I'm sorry. You didn't watch the state. Um, Four seasons later. Three seasons later, after you know, r- running into all manner of nonsense after dealing with the Zindi, after dealing <laughs> dealing with the augments, after dealing with Vulcan's nonsense, he's sitting here and he's he's look he's looking at his dinner and he looks up at T'Pol and is like, "Yo, were you right all along?" <laughs> like, that's the line. Is that were you right? Were you right all along? And we shouldn't fucking be here. All right, we'll consider this. And this is something that I said I wanted to start paying attention to back during the Tom Clancy trilogy. This is Archer post mind meld. This is Archer after he had Surik's brain living in his brain. Yeah. This is uh, Archer that has been touched by Vulcan Jesus. Vulcan philosopher. Yeah. So in that end, I can see him having this introspection to say, wait. Maybe we are moving too fast here. Let me let me reassess what's going on. This is also the first time where Archer has been put into a situation that he seemed eager to get involved in. Right. A lot of times he was stuck in a a bad situation that just got dropped in his lap. This is him going out of his way to like, yeah, I will captain the mission to run a diplomatic thing between these guys. Also, since we mentioned Dear Doctor, uh, there was a shout out on I think that was it Discord or was it uh Facebook. Anyways, it was on Discord. It was observer on effect yeah. to Dear Doctor. Uh Flock specifically. I think that was a missed conversation opportunity we had there where Flocks, who has done some some real dirty shit <laughs> as a doctor and deciding not to involve himself in the suffering of others, specifically Dear Doctor, having the tables turned and now watching his own crew suffer while other third-party observers are content to sit back and watch them die. Um, I think, like, there is a very clear difference in that one is a, could be seen as a natural process of the evolution of the planet because of the existence of the two species and one having essentially a genetic flaw that's causing them to fall into obsolescence. And the observer effect issue was, like, a known extraterrestrial disease foisted upon a planet. That's a hazard. That's not natural. That would just kill any carbon based life that goes near it. Like I, I totally respect what uh, was mentioned in discord to say like, boy, this seems like an, an inconsistency. I do not actually see it as one, to be honest, it is so vastly different a circumstance that even though I think we have talked dear doctor to death and we have retired, our concerns about it because otherwise it kind of gets old. Um, I don't think they necessarily even apply. 
they're different circumstances. Uh, they're both, I will say, evil actions. <laughs> yeah, still, still, nobody, nobody's in the unjustified right. on Flox's part. Nobody's in the right people. in either of those situations. Uh, I'm also willing to tag in and say that Flox as a character has changed in his time board enterprise and the crazy things that he has encountered and the scale and scope of what they have done to 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 save lives and change the fate of the galaxy um that this is not the same Flox as dear doctor and I think he has become a more compassionate person even if it's just in you know as shallow as acknowledging Porthos as um I would you know, I mean that, a good that, boy I, not a snack I'm I'm glad you've picked up on this obviously because there's actually a lot of content about Flox's changes to come there's whole episodes about it there's probably the best line of the whole show for him comes in essentially what I would consider the season series finale well I hope it has along to do those with lines. his son what's that I hope it has to do with his estranged son, because that was a really strong. Um, yeah, well, his racist son. Yeah. Yeah. What it doesn't have to do with that, but it still touches on everything you've just mentioned, though. It's good. <laughs> so jumping back in. Uh, I don't know if we should be getting involved in this, but we have to get involved in this. Something's wrong. And at the end of the argument in the conference room between. I think the conference room they're into is that fucking shitty room where they put the table up against the wall and they had to Paul pretend to be a judge. Yes. <laughs> judge dread. Uh, when, what was that? The fucking precious cargo, that piece of trash. Um, by the end of it, uh, Shran offers the suggestion and you could tell like he was really not he didn't want to say it. He knew it was a long shot, but it's possible that that ship that attacked us wasn't actually in Dorian. Something like there, was, there was a power signature that wasn't right. Well, the power signature wasn't right. And also that the weak point, the Achilles heel, we should have been able to hammer that thing with was not there. Something seems a little off. And they're going to investigate it deeper and what will eventually happen is to Paul and uh, Trip are going to come to Archer and say, listen, here's the ship that attacked us. Here's the telemetry that Shran was able to lift before his ship got blown up. Different ships, same power signature, whatever could be going on here. Well, they, the episode tells you halfway through. It's the Romulans. <laughs> <laughs> like, you think they're going to wait until the end of the episode to reveal that? No, sir. Halfway through, cut to a room. In this room, there's a guy jacked into something like he's Johnny Mnemonic. And who should be around whoever this guy is? Two dudes in toaster outfits that are very familiar looking. Yes, all of this is the fucking Romulan's fault. Hold on. Oh, wait, no, sorry. Wrong, wrong, wrong side effect. It's all <laughs> the Romulan's fault. There they are. Not just any Romulans. Brian Thompson. That big dude with the face. And I don't know how to describe Brian Thompson's face, but the facial structure on Brian Thompson bleeds through 
every prosthetic you could possibly put on this guy. His fucking chin, man. His chin is undefeatable. This is the guy that was uh, the alien bounty hunter in X-Files. This is the guy that's the Klingon that tells Riker that Gok is best served alive. Uh, This is one of the street punks in the beginning of the Terminator. This is the guy specifically that uh, Arnold Schwarzenegger impales with his fist after he refuses to give him clothing. Even when this guy plays a Jem Hadar, which is a makeup job that is extremely thick. He, that chin is still undefeatable. This might be the most masculine Romulan I think I've ever seen. Dude, it's just a muscle mass. Usually <laughs> Romulans look a little thinner, a little more spindly, treacherous, spindly, yeah, yeah wiry. This guy. Oh, I'm st- sorry. How could I leave him out while well, we're over here? Uh, Observing his his potent frame, this is Eddie Fury, Bruja Primogen from Kindred the Embraced. <laughs> how how dare we forget his most seminal role? <laughs> it's hard to you know what? I'm gonna sidetrack a second. It is hard to fathom that that show exists. If Can I, I tell you something? It, yeah. I've never watched it. Like and I'm almost clips. tempted, like, how many seasons of it was there? One? Just one. How many episodes? Like 26 or is it like 13? 13. Is that something we needed to fucking moonlight through before we do? Like, uh, you know what? That might be interesting. It might be interesting to go back over it just to see, like, how it, how how it's received now. It's definitely, it is so 90210. It was Vampire such 90210. a... And I love Vampire the Masquerade. Yeah, I, I mean, love Vampire the Mas- I love it, it, 90s Vampire the Masquerade. And it was such a disgusting proposition, like just reading what that shit was about. I was like, I will never watch this fucking thing. As much as I love this game, I have zero desire to watch this show. That might get- be something we're going to have to. Maybe it's p- Patreon. I don't know. I wonder how many podcasts out there have reviewed Kindred the Embrace, but probably none. And to be honest, that is something we're extremely well suited to do. And might, I would wager a lot of our audience would enjoy us. We might have like to really going super app. deep on why we know what we know about it. Like, cause that's a hidden lore to them. Like there, there are people who have been listening to our voices for five years who don't know, who don't know the lore. They, they don't know the things the, we know. The charmed life. Um, we might have to broadcast that out as a hour of power production though. <laughs> Maybe. Although, you know, it, I halfway point though, could be that we just like review interview the vampire or something like that. Like if we really want to give people a taste, you know, I don't know. I've already seen the interview of the vampire. Like, that's I have to use this podcast to justify watching garbage. I would not have watched otherwise. Um, so yeah, Brian Thompson is the leader guy. They're in this cramped little bridge. And there is a guy with a souped up Quest 15, MetaQuest <laughs> Oculus 15 on with with all sorts of RGB LEDs. And he's got the fucking like this dude is a cyber jacked and this dude is playing cool. the best game of Beat Saber you've ever seen. <laughs> Actually, it looks like he's playing Stratagema because he's got all the cords yeah. hanging off his fingertips and he's That's like true. Yeah. Air clicking with them. Um. The jig is up. And this is like classic Star Trek bad guy where it's like, 
we did not get a clean kill when we attacked Enterprise. And uh, we outran them. And rather than just leaving good enough alone and running off and hiding, uh, we are going to determine that they saw too much and we're going to have to prolong this conflict and hunt them down and kill them, thus giving the heroes ample chance to, in fact, put their D and RA. This is such an interesting writing conundrum they've put themselves in by having the Romulans be involved. It makes sense because the lore is that the conflict that breaks out, that ultimately unites all of the Alpha Quadrant races together in the Federation is against the Romulans. And to set the table, which is what they're doing now, because their intention, of course, is if we get season five, we're going to do the Romulan war, right? Like that was their plan was let's seed these this idea out there of the Romulans are fucking with everybody because they don't want everyone to actually get into an alliance because that to oppose them because that would create a, a counterbalancing force to their own influence. Um, but the thing is, is that in the one episode of, of TOS, when the Romulans were first uh, mentioned, the, there's a huge plot point that no one has actually physically ever seen a Romulan. No one. Like, no human, no Vulcan, no Tellarite, no Andorian has ever actually physically, personally seen a, a Romulan, and thus it was a tremendous surprise and a huge part of the episode when it turns out that they looked exactly like Vulcans, except slightly different color. And... So this whole episode is constructed around the conceit that no one is allowed to see a Romulan. It was early in our conversation in this podcast that I, I made the mental association because I've been so um, sidetracked by the transporter episode. Uh, but yet at the end of Tom Clancy trilogy, it's disclosed that this entire shitty Vulcan regime that's been in power has been maybe puppeted, maybe empowered by Romulan agents, uh, certainly steered towards a needless war with the Andorians, right? And that's the first conflict that Enterprise has thwarted that Romulus was trying to brew to cause problems in the Alpha Quadrant. And now you've got another opportunity to force the Tellarites to war with the Andorians. Andorians are an easy mark, basically. They're, they're yeah, easy to they're rile up. They're like, they're very aggressive. See, these these are the guys... People to uh, to antagonize and what fortuitous timing for Jonathan Archer and enterprise to get into space with just barely a year, maybe two years to fuck with Pajem expose the Romulan backed science station, deep, you know, observation post uh, that was aimed at making war with uh, Andorians and all this other stuff. But like, it, it 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 the Romulan CIA network of like just keeping the region destabilized. I don't know if they were afraid of uh, or adverse to Earth or I'm sorry, not Earth, but all of these species uniting so much as they wanted to make sure that they were always at odds. Yeah, I kind of like your idea of it's like the CIA making sure absolutely. everyone's too busy fighting each other right. to ever fuck with them. And it's funny because by pulling so many strings and needling these races and pushing them towards the brink of war, it's that's what opened the door for humanity to come in and 
and chill things out and play that negotiator role. Like maybe had they not been pushing so hard, humanity would not have been as motivated and the other races would not have been as receptive to bringing outsiders in to play in these matters and things would have stayed uh, unfriendly longer. And it speaks to why ultimately the Romulans choose to pull the trigger and try and take humanity out before the con the this this sort of confluence of their enemies comes together and their ability to manipulate them is substantially reduced right like the existing kind of like background information on the earth romulan war within tv canon is very limited but it's obviously extremely explored in novels and in particular novels of the enterprise era because it was the what they picked up on doing after the show was canceled Really um, was do like, OK, well, if we knew season five was going to be the Earth Romulan War and the writers. Essentially wrote those novels, right, like it kind of completed the story that they intended to tell so much so that when we see the NX-01 in the Fleet Museum in Picard season three, it is arranged in the way that it was supposed to be in season five of Enterprise with a whole uh, Star Drive section. Really? Yeah. So the idea was in season five, it was going to get a huge refit. It was going to have shield. It was going to have like Andorian technology. It was going to have shields and all this other stuff hmm. and be vastly improved. And then the earth Romulan war was going to break out. And there was a whole process by which earth ultimately calls all the, you know, everyone together to say like, this isn't just our problem. It's all of our problem. These are the people that have been trying to keep us at our, each other's throats for the last century. Like all of our problems are connected to them. We have to unite because that's the only way we can assure our future was what, you know, that's, you know, it's a great story, right? And it's gives you the birth of the Federation that you've been looking for. Um, and you know, like, like you said, like this, the them being the CIA agents who are trying to keep everyone at each other's throats using their drones. Spoiler. Mm -hmm. <laughs> like, <laughs> makes a lot of sense, right? Like they're out here drone striking weddings, trying to make sure that shit doesn't, doesn't bother the, the homeland. And it turns out that they've accidentally caused everyone to start to like figure their own, sh figure their shit out. So enterprise uh, picks up on the signature for, this attacking vessel, they fly over, they see a really cool looking ship that does not look Romulan at all from the outside. It looks very, um, look Kazon ish a little bit. Kind, kind, a high tech well, Kazon ship. No, it wouldn't be Kazon. What were they called? The travelers, Tra Trevars who made the ships the Kazon stole. Oh yeah, yeah, yeah. No, I know what you mean. Their ships. Yes, sure. Um, they notice that there's a lot of antennas on the front of this, which they'll later attribute to the the cloaking device being able to mimic other ships in appearance. We'll find out that that's just long range antennas so they can uh, VR pilot this thing around. But they go up to it and they're like, oh, hey, well, this matches the energy signature. Let's go check it out rather than take a shuttlecraft over. And I, I was very aware of that, too. They choose to just beam onto this thing after hailing it. No response, this and that. It gave me vibes from uh, what was a the spider skull, uh, the spider people episode. Was that had... like the second episode? <laughs> yeah, what the fuck was that called? <laughs> I forget what it's called. But they come across a derelict vessel and like fly over there, you know, extend the tube. We're gonna see for the door open. Oh wait, no, there's a door. Now it's like, hey, it's season four. 
we're cool with the transporter. Like, oh, look at them. They're grown. No, in reality, it's so they could strand them there easily. They go over with two Makos. There's no uh, pressure, right? There's no atmosphere. They don't have the chance to stupidly take their helmets off and get like alien goo in their eyes and become sympathetic or other weird space maladies. Um, they're, they're peeking around. Uh, the ship starts attacking him. It's got crazy piloting ability. It's whipping and flying all over the place. The Makos get beamed off first. For some reason, they're more important than senior office, than your chief engineer and your, you gotta uh, have, you gotta trip and read have to have some buddy time together. It's been a while. Them alone on a ship. It's shuttle pod. Talking one talking about right. to Paul's ass again. Like they even reference it. They, you know, those, these goddamn EV suits that just, they might as well be made out of Legos, man. You look at these things and they just fall apart. Hoses popping, air going out everywhere. Digging through. Um, they'll later. Uh, I thought it was really clever. The The decision to make this ship a drone ship, to have them just needlessly searching this ship for a bridge that doesn't exist in the format that they're expecting. Uh, I like the Bruja Primogen finding them fucking around on there. I'm like, man, why is this video quality so shitty? Like these guys got terrible internal camera systems. Oh, it's because it's beaming across space. And his, uh, his solution is like, well, there's no atmosphere in there. Just do evasive maneuvers and just slam these guys all over. Yeah, the oh, the inertial dampeners are offline. So if we go to, if we go at full impulse, they're going to get slammed up against the bulkhead. Mm-hmm. Nice touch. Nice touch. Um, meanwhile, on the ship, you've got Shran, First, he, you know, he gets told by T'Pol and Archer, like what the deal is. And he reacts poorly to the idea that this isn't the Tellarite's fault to the point where he insults T'Pol and Archer has to once again, check him, be like, you are you're talking to my first officer. You're going to shut the fuck up. You're not going to take that disrespectful tone. And so he's kind of mad, <laughs> kind of just simmering in his anger in his quarters with his girlfriend. Which, again, as much as you can finger point at Archer and say, like, dude, you just went through this. You can say the same thing to Shran. Like, you just saw this bullshit war that was being pressed by the Vulcans that the Vulcan people did not want. Right. There, Why there would are, this be a shock to you? Right. Like, so you expect this. You, your race is basically a bunch of red ants waiting to bite whoever steps on them. And people are getting shoved to step on your colony. Like, this should not be such an alien concept at this point that someone's trying to put you at odds with other people. I, I really hope the follow-up episode to this, like it dawns on him that he's been getting played relentlessly over the past two seasons. Shran eventually asks his girlfriend if maybe possibly she could, and I quote override enterprises, security protocols. A little while later, we see exactly what he meant by that. So here we are. We're outside the quarters that Shran and, and Talos are in. Door opens. Talos is there. Apparently she raided like Hoshi's closet of, you know, completely inappropriate clothing to wear on a starship. I thought that was maybe somehow obtained from Perseus. <laughs> Possibly. Perseus' um, nightwear. It is tank top panties. That is all. And she has come hither in the door. Mr. Business turns around and she's all over this guy. She's like, listen, 
probably not aware. Dorian ladies, they're allowed to fuck some guy if they want to fuck before they get married. I've never fucked a human before. Will you oblige me? Mr. Business. This, <laughs> this dude is so on point. He's like, get the fuck back in your quarters. I'm not fucking Mr. You. Business you is me? like, I know I'm a black dude, but what if I told you I was a great, great grandfather to smoldering catcher? Get back in that fucking room right now. What's that? Your boyfriend's trying to come out here? I don't know what kind of goofy three-way stuff you want, but he's going to get punched across the jaw and thrown back in. And unfortunately, he's not smoldering catcher, so he is not immune to an ass beating. And uh, she lays him out on the floor with some karate kicks. I mean, he squares up, right? Like, first, he's just like... He he dragon punches <laughs> like Shrench starts to come out of the room. And it's like a split second. He's like, no, poosh, right? Like you're fucking done. You're done out of this fight. Mm-hmm. It's me and this bitch right here. And he, he, he squares up. I'm like, let's go. Let's do this. And he just gets his ass kicked. Yeah, he's <laughs> he's, he's like, second generation Mako. He's not part of that OG unit. Otherwise, yeah. he'd know to get the tonfa out and stun her ass. But she lays him out. Uh, all the Andorians get out. They get armed. They're running and gunning through the halls. They bust into the Tellarite uh, ambassador's room. And he's like, you know, I'm fresh off of uh, torturing my good friend Sarek, or not Sarek, Suval, for information that was redundant. I'm going to do the same thing to you. Not a lot of personal growth out of uh, out of <laughs> Shran. <laughs> Shran. He's, like, he's, he's still, still just, just re- really wanting to go and torture people. Yeah, you know? he, he he goes back to the old ways real quick. Uh, gets out there, gets them all at gunpoint. Archer comes running in, gets some nice shots. He's had plenty of opportunities to have gunfights in his own hallways, courtesy of the Zindi raiding parties. Yeah, no, and this is where I'm saying, like him and the fucking Makos, they just they they run hot dick all over the Andorians. Like they, uh, they, they, they are moving at a pace. They are checking corners. They're zapping them down. Like they're not, these guys are not amateurs anymore. Yeah. I, I'd still think if these were uh season three Makos, this would have all gone very differently from the very beginning. Oh, you Major know, Hayes was there. Was, that's what was, I'm going to chalk it up to. We don't have yeah. major Hayes and, and the negative influence of uh Reed. He's tainted to their uh, professionalism. Gets in, hey, you know, let me de-escalate the situation. I think we've got uh, a third party masquerading is see masquerading. Bruhat yeah, we brought it all together. Yeah, so Paul has figured out at this point because of the power signature matching the minefield that they ran into. Great continuity. Right. Yes, uh, that this is possibly the Romulans that are involved here because there's there's no other evidence to point to anyone else. They de-escalate everything in the room during their Mexican standoff. And then one of the Andorian ambassadors, fucking no-name lackeys. I'm sorry, Tellerites. Yeah. Grabs the pistol out of T'Pol's hand, turns around, and shoots Shran's girlfriend for some reason. No, it pulls pulls the pistol out of Shran's girlfriend's hand because it's a Mako pistol. uh, Whatever. This dude needlessly, like, reignites a fight to the point where I have to wonder... Uh, were the Romulans directly dealing with certain Tellarites and certain Andorians the same way that they were dealing with the uh, the what was his name? Varel Vestel, the Romulan. I'm sorry, the Vulcan High Command the president of, of Vulcan. Yeah. You know, the Richard Nixon of Vulcan. I'm assuming that Vulcans have 
you know, their, their CIA operatives have uh, co-opted spies and uh, agents in all of these other races. And maybe this dude knows like, hey, we need to go to war if I'm going to get free medical care for my kid who's sick or whatever the CIA is bribing him with. And that's why he decides to shoot uh, not Susie Plaxton. Lucky for him, though, he just uh, wings her on the shoulder. It's but a flesh wound. And Shran's pretty quick to for, like just ignore that guy's existence instead of like slitting his throat or other Imperial Guard stuff. You know, he's worried about his woman. I get it. Sure. You know, whatever. That guy can wait. My, my lady needs me. And then the last reveal of the episode is, you know, Tripp and, and Reed get to the bridge of the ship they're on. There's no one on it. Sure enough, it's remote controlled directly from Romulus as we get a pan out shot from the, the room they're in and some palatial estate within the city. I will note that not Susie Plaxton fought the Mako in her bra and panties, knocked him out. And before they began their, uh, their armed mutiny or whatever, she took the time to go put all of her clothes back on. It's a professional like <laughs> I'm only I only pull the honeypot when absolutely necessary. Otherwise, yeah. it's straight business, you know, yeah. mm-hmm. to speed speed runs that whole uh, leather outfit back on. It's good. Good episode. Again, there's a lot of paint by numbers going on here. The fact that this ship is a probe, uh, an unmanned probe or drone, I guess I should say. Was a neat plot twist for me. I figured it was just so, hey. Uh, Trip and Reed are stuck in a situation where they're going to run out of air eventually. Lucky for them again that the hose connectors on their suits match the hose or the the O2 ports on the Apparently there's universal ports in Starship industry standards. Yeah. yeah. This is something we've talked about before. I believe it actually came up back in the uh, the mine episode too. Everybody uses the same 3 quarter inch <laughs> How air <nice>. tubing. <laughs> how, how convenient. International uh, Space Home Depot supplies everybody. Uh, you making the comment, though, that there is a a rules call and play that nobody can ever see a Romulan. Correct. Being the necessitating factor on this being a drone rather than a manned vessel um, makes a lot of sense. But it, it, it's still a cool curveball, and I'm interested to see where we go from here. Less, I mean, you know which way the, the plot's going to resolve here. I'm more interested as we move forward on. Again, is Shran going to realize that they've been getting played and really people start to see like the um, the Charlie. God, what's his name? Oh, the the Pepe Silva. Pepe Silva. (laughs) Yeah. Maybe we need a a meme of like (laughs) Shran looking and everything. All of the tacks on Andoria are all the Romulans. It's a good episode. There's just a fucking ton going on here. I think we, we talked about this episode for clear an hour and there was, there was more we could have gone over, right? Like that, that's the truth. We could have made this two episodes. I think we're smart not to just because there's just going to be even more next episode. And uh, if we learned anything from, from breaking up all of those uh, augments episodes is that we'll be doing the season forever if we keep that up. (laughs) But yeah, like it's just so dense and it's good dense. It's everything is great. These scenes are great. The acting is great. Uh, Jeffrey Combs is excellent. The guy who plays the fucking Telluride ambassador is good too. Like I have no complaints about any performances yeah. here. Brian Thompson's cheekbones are on point. Even with Absolutely. that Romulan wig. 
the plot makes a ton of sense. Like if anything, I think I, I really appreciate the fact that they're so in tune with, with uh track canon that their, their use of the Romulans respects the balance of terror meta, you know, mm. like this is excellent Star Trek. And if for some reason you've never seen it, you should. I will also say that there is pushback on the Romulan side. The Romulan primogen, Brian Thompson, is abusing a prototype drone. He was not supposed yeah. to get as aggressive with this. So there's like scientist dude. So this might be a rogue element within uh, Romulus. I, I think ultimately Brian Thompson, Romulan primogen, he's, he's probably going to get shot for being naughty. We'll see. Uh, next episode, we're going into a season four, episode 13. This is going to be Judith and Garfield Reed Stevens. They did. Uh, they do the transporter episode, I think. Yes, they did. Story by Manny Cotto, directed by old man David Livingston. Archer tries to unify the Andorians, Tellarites, humans, and Vulcans in a plan to capture a marauder ship threatening to destabilize the region. I want to see what the Vulcans are up to. I want to see who's in charge. It's T'Pau who's in charge of the Vulcans. Correct. And actually, like a lot of what Archer did in prior episodes comes into play here, too. So great episode. Can't wait to watch it with you, Peter. And can't wait to review it and send it all along to you, our lovely patrons. If you are on our Patreon, just a brief note, you can expect a review of Wrath of Khan from Peter and I before the winter is over. We're hoping to have it to you in time for for Valentine's Day because it's a review of something everyone likes. (laughs) So why not? Everyone loves. So why not celebrate Valentine? So celebrate Valentine's Day that way. We appreciate everyone's continued support on Patreon. And if you're interested in being part of our Patreon, feel free to head over at www.patreon.com slash feature, please. And support us for as little as $3 a month. Get access to our existing uh, Patreon exclusive episodes, which is Tank Girl uh, and Event Horizon and our review of Lower Deck Season 4 specifically focused on the two Vix episode. And Rathcon will be joining that soon, as well as a bunch of odds and ends throughout the years. And uh, we appreciate your support. Thanks for listening.